But go ahead and turn to Psalm 39, because that will be the first verse we'll read. Um, Lord willing, hopefully next week we can have a PowerPoint ready. I kind of threw it on the guys last thing uh, today. I haven't done a PowerPoint in a long time. It seems like as I've been teaching more expositionally, just staying with, that, staying with a passage, it doesn't seem as necessary for a PowerPoint, but when you're doing more topical subjects and you're bouncing around a lot more in the Word of God, it seems like the PowerPoint comes in a little bit more handy with that. And so we'll be bouncing around a lot is what I'm telling you. And so uh, hopefully we can get that going next week. Um, anyhow, a covenant of redemption. Now, first of all, let me define the word covenant. We're going to have prayer in just a moment. I want to tell you a little bit about what we're talking about. A covenant, the word covenant is an agreement, uh, usually formal, uh, between two or more persons to do or not to do something. That's pretty simple and basic. So an agreement, usually formal, between two or more persons to do or not to do something uh, specified. Now, so when we say covenant of redemption, I'll give you a very brief uh, definition of, of what covenant of redemption is. It is the agreement between all three persons in the Godhead in order uh, to secure redemption for God's people. That's, that's a very concise definition. We'll explain that more as we go along. Now, what we're calling uh, the covenant of redemption is labeled other things in the theological realm. Uh, it is labeled doctrines of grace. Um, I personally, I, my pastor wrote a book on doctrines of grace. It's a great book. Um, I'm not a fan of the term, of, of, of calling it that. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. I just don't think it encapsulates all that there is on the doctrines or teachings of grace. Um, grace is much more involved than what we're going to talk about regarding salvation. Uh, there's grace and suffering, there's grace and service, and those things. So, um, and also, it's referred to in a theological world that the points, some of the points we're going to make, uh, some would label it as Calvinism. All right? I don't like the term Calvinist. I don't like the term Calvinism. Um, what we're going to look at is from the Bible. All right? uh, did Calvin believe the things we're going to talk about? Yes, he did. But he didn't coin them. They didn't start with him. And so we want to make that clear. And so we're going to look at the covenant of redemption. It will be five points. Uh, but I want you to look at this because it's a very biblical perspective on the teaching of this covenant regarding salvation. What we're going to talk about today is going to be the necessity of the covenant. Why did God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, why did they need uh, to create a covenant? Um, secondly, we're going to look at the Father's specific choice. Uh, thirdly, we'll look at the Son's specific death. Uh, Fourthly, the Spirit-specific call. And then lastly, the everlasting results of the covenant. Um, like I said, those things are labeled differently. Some people uh, talk about total depravity or unconditional election or limited atonement or irresistible uh, grace uh, or perseverance or preservation of the saints. It's a matter of semantics. I, don't, I like these terms better because I believe this is more biblical in regards to the language. Because it is a covenant that God has made. God the Father made with, with the Son and the Spirit to redeem a fallen people who had no hope to save themselves because they were spiritually dead. And then through that covenant to give them eternal life that can never, ever, ever be taken away. Now, there's a lot of people out there that would believe in eternal security. 
but they don't believe some of the things of these doctrines that lead up to eternal security. To me, that's problematic. When, whenever you start saying, well, I believe in eternal security, but you believe that salvation is all of your choice, of your will, and that you did it, God did all He could, but then it was kind of finally up to you, but you, then you believe in eternal security? So is that eternal security kept by you? There's a lot, so all of these things build up, and it's, these doctrines are very important and vital, I think, to the Christian faith. But now with all that said, as a, as a small introduction, let's go ahead and get started in regards to the necessity of the covenant. Why did, why did God need to make this covenant with Himself, uh, if you would, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in order to redeem us? Psalms 39 and verse 5, we'll start here. Psalms 39 and verse 5. The psalmist says this, Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. And this really encapsulates man, his spiritual state. Certainly every man at his best state. The New King James says, is but vapor. If you have a King James Bible, it might say, is uh, vanity. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your help as we come into this subject, and I pray that it would help us, that it would illuminate our minds to the awful plight that, Lord, that we were in. And apart from your, your plan and your purpose, apart from the covenant that you had made, uh, long even before we were born, before the foundation of the world, if you had not done that, we would have no hope today. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And we had nothing to do with that. And so, Lord, we thank you for that redemption that we have, Lord, because of you and you alone. Open our eyes to see the truth of your word and help us to understand today the necessity of that covenant and how desperate we were. And apart from your supernatural grace, none of us could save ourselves and none of us would have wanted saved. Help us to see that today. In Jesus' name. And amen. Psalms 39.5, the psalmist says, Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor or vanity. Vanity. Uh, the word there that's translated vapor or vanity uh, it's, it's very adequately describes every lost man. Uh, the word speaks of possessing no goodness, of having no righteousness or holiness to offer God. It speaks of worthless, something trivial, less than nothing. All of that comes from that one word. Now that doesn't line up with our idea and our culture how that everybody is great and everybody's wonderful, you know. Uh, it doesn't line up with that at all. Man in his natural state is at the, at the very best. When you look at man in his natural state, at his very best state, the best that he can possibly be, He's worthless. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that verse sums up man's spiritual state. And that's where we're at. That's where we're at apart from God. That's where we're at apart from God the Father, Son, and Spirit entering in into covenant and leaving us alone. That's where we are. One of the things that people will have against us teaching is say, well, I just don't think it's fair what you're teaching or Listen, if, if we got what was fair, we would all go to hell. Because that's where we all deserve to go. We're, we have sinned against the holy God. What's amazing is that God would save any of us. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20 
And then also verse 29 says this, For there is not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. Not a one. Then he says, Lo, this only have I found, that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Now in Isaiah chapter 14, I hope you come with your Bibles and ready to turn. Listen, you're at church, you should bring a Bible, all right? If you don't have one, we'll get you one. Uh, and ask me about that. Um, Isaiah 14 and verse 12. Here's where we really see the, the origin of sin. This is Satan, okay? We're running a little bit of a foundation for man's spiritual plight, okay? Isaiah 14 and verse 12. This is speaking of Satan. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the far sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I mean, that is the desire of Satan. What's he want? He wants to be what? He wants to be God. He wants to be God. And what was his temptation whenever he came into the Garden of Eden? I mean, it was the promised man that he could be God's. And um, he won, and so he, he appealed to man upon that. And he knew that that was a strong point, right? To get somebody to do something they shouldn't do because that's what motivated him. Listen, Satan's desire was to exalt himself above God, to usurp the authority of God. He is the father of lies. And, and he takes that, that, that lie to, to Eve in the garden. We find Satan in, in the book of Genesis. He comes to Eve to deceive her and... When God had made everything, what? What does God say about everything that He had made after He had made man? What does He finally say at the very end when He made man? He said, it looked upon everything and it was very good. That doesn't sound like what the Word of God has to say about man now. At His very best state, He's altogether vain. He's altogether worthless. Well, what in the world happened? When God made us, it was very good. Now we're less than worthless in our natural state. Well, Satan deceived Eve, as we know, hopefully, to take of the forbidden fruit and, and rebellion. She does that, and she gives it to her husband. He rebelled against the Lord, His Creator. And he sought to be his own authority against the Word of God. And because of such, the Bible teaches that Adam died that very day. You know, God made a promise to Adam that the day that he ate of that fruit and the day that he ate thereof, he would die. Well, Adam lived a long time after that physically. But Adam died spiritually that day. He could no longer walk with God, no longer commune with God. Adam was dead that day spiritually. We find him immediately after the fall. He's running from God. He's hiding from God. There's no desire for God to come to God. And Adam was no longer good. Whereas just before, God would say he was very good. And immediately, he is not good. At his best state, the day he fell, Adam was, at his very best state, was vanity. Work less than worthless. Now we're not talking about, if you would, how we may value somebody. Okay, But when it comes to spirituality... In our best state, we are worthless. We have nothing to offer God. No good at all. Nothing good about us spiritually. 
We may look upon people who are lost and say they have some admirable traits that we might call them in our language are good people. You know, they may not be immoral. They try to be good citizens. But spiritually, if they're without Christ and they don't know Him and they haven't been born again by the Spirit of God at their best state spiritually, they're dead. Now here's something that you need to realize is that Adam was our representative. And this is important to establish all of this. Adam was our representative. A representative is one who acts on the behalf of others. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he was acting on the behalf of us, on the behalf of the entire human race. Say, well, I don't like that. Well, let me tell you what. Do you think in your condition today that you would have done better? You wouldn't have. You would have taken the tree tree quicker than Adam did. But he was our representative. He was our, what we might call our federal head. And realize this, that Adam was the perfect, perfect representative of, for us. The thrice holy God looked upon Adam and said, He is very good. He made him upright, as Ecclesiastes said. God can't say that of us today in our natural condition. Adam was the best representative that man could have ever hoped for, but he failed in the garden as a result of his sin against God. And ever since then, all men and women who are ever born are born with a nature that is sinful and against God. Adam is the natural father of all of the human race. And so that nature is corrupt and sinful, is inherited by all of us. Now that principle is is taught in Romans chapter 5 several times. We'll take a glance at a few verses there. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, this is speaking of Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Now that's a spiritual death and a physical death. It encapsulates both. Uh, Verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one. Speaking of the first Adam. Verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Death is inherent. That spiritual nature is inherent. In other words, what I'm saying is that man is born spiritually dead. As I know we, we love those little kids. <laughs> But listen, they're little sinners. And listen, you don't have to be a parent for very long to find that out. Inherent means that every man inherits the sinful nature of their parents. Psalms 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Psalms 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Job says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. We're told in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Have you, even if you don't believe in an inherent spiritual 
death that comes down through Adam, ask yourself this one question. Have you ever sinned? Well, yeah. Then you are, then listen, you have a spiritual death about you that you were born with. For the wages of sin is death. In our natural state, we are eternally separated from God without hope. Death means separation. That's what happens when we die. Our soul is separated from our body. But for a child of God, we never die in the sense that we are never separated from God. Because when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But death is a separation. I'm looking forward to death, the separation from this body, but I'm not going to be dead. I'm alive spiritually and forever will be as a child of God, and so will you if you're a child of God. Now, sin is not imputed by example. In other words, your children aren't sinners because you taught them to sin. And sometimes we joke, you know, we see little kids do something and say, well, I wonder where they learned that from. Let me tell you what, those little rascals didn't have to learn it from anybody by sight, okay? It's part of their nature. I mean, don't you, it's, 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 God is amazing in how He's made everything, uh, how they, things by nature do certain things. Like, how do they know that? Well, sinful nature is the same way. How do they know to tell a lie? How do they know to be rebellious sometimes? How do, they, how do they come up with some of this stuff? Like, well, he must have seen his daddy do it. Listen, don't think that daddy did that. I mean, and, it's, and it, like literally did it. Now, maybe daddy did. I don't know. Uh, but they, they don't need a visual example to learn how to sin. They are born with that. And listen, you can see it at a very young age, can't you? What do we call them, the terrible twos? Right? There's, a, there's a reason we call them that. That rebellion really starts showing forward. Me do it, right? I'm going to do it. My way. I don't want to listen. It is inherent. Children sin because they are born with a nature to sin. People sin. I haven't said this in a long time, but it's truth. People sin because they're sinners. They, they are sinners by nature. And that has been passed down to us since the time of Adam. Listen, people's main problem today it's not what they do or what they have done. Listen, it's not that. That's not our society's main problem, what they're doing. The main problem is what they are within. We have what we do on the outside with all of our culture, with all the immorality, because what's on the inside, Jesus teaches, comes out. For out of the heart of man proceeds all of these evil things. The heart of man is desperately wicked. The heart of man is corrupt. God must, we want things to change. I think we're very selfish sometimes because we want a better world to live in. And well, the world wasn't so bad and this wasn't going on and that wasn't going on. I think we're very selfish in that kind of language. Because we're not concerned about the lost souls that are out there, that their hearts are corrupt without God, that are bringing forth these things. We're more concerned about living a good life here and now, living in a good culture, society, where everything's kind of nice and neat and kept, and we got our little white picket fence around our house, and all's good here in America, and we're not concerned 
about hearts of men that are corrupt without Christ, without hope in themselves, with a nature that is at enmity with God. We're more concerned about our living at ease than we are about people being lost and going to hell. When God changes people's hearts, guess what changes in our world? Everything. The culture changes. Society changes. It's all for the better. When God steps in and divinely and powerfully and sovereignly changes the hearts of men, women, and children through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the solution to all of the ills of our society? When you understand what we're talking about, and sometimes it's labeled as total depravity, but it is a sinful, inherent nature, and it is, it is total, complete. And unless God does something to change man's heart, he will always go against God. Now, this spiritual death that we have, it is universal, meaning that it extends to every natural man without exception, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's total in, in the sense that every faculty of the natural man, every faculty of the natural man has been tainted and corrupted by sin. Isaiah 1, verse 5 says, Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart uh, faint. For the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. And that describes our spiritual condition. Our, uh, Sam Storm said this. He said, according to the doctrine of total depravity, he said, man is in his present condition since the fall is so polluted with a principle of evil that every aspect of his being and personality is affected by it. The term depravity refers to the moral disposition or inclination of fallen man's nature toward evil and against good. This principle of sin and moral pollution is such that man is by nature opposed to what is true and righteous. The inclination of his heart, the delight of his soul, the orientation of his will is toward wickedness. Nothing compels him to sin. He sins because he loves it. He revels in it. He has no taste for God, but relishes evil and pursues it with voluntary zeal. <laughs> that really sums it up. But that's how we are naturally. But you know, that's not how people want to see themselves. It doesn't, it's not very flattering. But listen, when we're lost without Christ, that sums up everything. Let me tell you what, even when we're saved, that still sums up that fallen nature, that old Adamic nature. Adamic nature that we still have within us, but now we have a new nature as well, the Spirit of Christ. But that old nature, it's still there. When God saves us, He gives us a new heart, but know this, that old nature is still present. And every day we must put it off, put it off, and put on the new. When God saves us, He doesn't make the old nature better. <laughs> That's not what happens. Listen, if you're here and lost without Christ, you need to understand this, that, that without Christ, you have nothing good to offer God. Now, when you understand this fallen nature, doesn't this, don't you think this will affect with how we witness to people, how we talk to people? 
Well, we want to try to approach people very softly. We want to make them think, you know, they're really not all that bad. You just, you're not really all that bad. I know you haven't done this and you haven't done that. I mean, you're a pretty good person. But you, st- you still need to trust Jesus, though. No, let me tell you what. You are corrupt. Listen, if you're without Christ, you haven't repented, you haven't looked to Calvary, you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in your best state, that as much as you may go to church, that the best you may be, the best husband, the best father and mother, the best person you may be, the, you may give a lot, you may do a lot of good works, a lot of good things, but I'm telling you what, without Jesus Christ, at your very best state, at your very best state, you have nothing at all to offer God. Nothing. You can't offer Him one thing that is acceptable and pleasing in His sight. Because without faith, you cannot please God. You're not just a little bit bad. You're completely bad. And evil and wicked and vile. Say, man, I don't like that preacher. (laughs) Well, I didn't like it either. (laughs) But we have to hear the truth about ourselves before we can really truly understand the depths and the richness of the love that God had for us in saving our souls. If I was just a little bit bad, then love's like, you know, right here. But if I'm really, really, really bad, wow, what love has been manifested towards us. Now, say, well, preacher, I know, man, you're saying I'm like the worst person ever living yeah we all are <laughs> by nature so well, I, but but okay I, i'm getting you preacher but i haven't done as many really bad things as other people have I, you know i can agree with that i mean not everybody's a hitler right i mean not everybody's a charles manson um but i think that whenever you really understand you, the depths of your depravity and you're really honest about some of the thoughts that go on in your mind and the level of depravity within, no, you may not act upon it, but you're thinking about things that you know are very vile and wicked. I think that you would, if you would be honest with yourself, you would look at some of the most vile of, of men or women and say, and say honestly, but by the grace of God, I would be such a person. So the propensity is there because the nature is there. Isaiah 64, 6 really sums up a lot of what we're saying. It says, but we are all, this is the prophet speaking, but we, we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. R.C. Sproul said, What is meant by the concept of total depravity is not that man is wicked as he could possibly be, but as we are, we can still conceive of ourselves doing worse things than we do. (laughs) Rather, it means that sin has such a hold upon us in our natural state that we have never have a positive desire for Christ. Folks, that's us in our natural state. It's not good, it's not pretty. Now, the results of this spiritual death, the results of this spiritual death is that every faculty of man is tainted with sin 
And as a result, we are incapable of performing anything that is good and pleasing to God. That's hard to hear. Because we want to believe that we were, in our, we're pretty good eggs, you know. We really have something good to offer God. And sometimes people even try to appeal to people upon that. Boy, if you would just, if you just come to church, you'd be such a great addition because you're this and you're that. Listen, if they're not born again by the grace of God, they're not going to bring something good and positive. They're not going to be good without salvation in Christ first. The Bible teaches that every faculty of our being is corrupt. Our heart is bad. Genesis 6, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We're told that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. In John 3, 19 through 20, we're taught that men love darkness rather than light. Man's mind is bad. In Romans 8, the carnal mind is at enmity with God. And I, I love this one here in and love in an odd sort of way, I guess, but love in the sense of how clear and descriptive it is. But in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2, if you want to turn there, uh, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, says this, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. In your natural state, you can't know the spiritual things of God. It's not possible. Why? Because your mind is bad. Man's eyesight is bad. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Your spiritual sight is dead. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. <laughs> but the Lord ponders the hearts. You're there in Corinthians, but turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. It says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Our, our mind is blinded. Man's hearing is bad. Jesus told the Pharisees that they had a hearing problem. He says, why do you not understand my speech? He said, even because you cannot hear my word. He that is of God hears God's words. Until you're of God, you can't hear. You can't hear spiritually. You cannot hear them, he says, because you are not of God. Romans chapter 3, we won't turn there, but in verses 10 through 18. I mean, we've seen that in the past, but really tells us the necessity of the covenant because it describes how wicked and vile man is. And so when you understand this, when you understand that our natural state, there's zero good, Zero good. The source, you realize that the source of spiritual life is not found in man's flesh or his will, 
but only in the supernatural power of God. And folks, this is important. When, we, when, when you have man just kind of bad and a little bit good, it, it affects how we present the gospel of Jesus Christ. It affects it greatly. We, we hear so much today in regards sometimes to how the gospel is presented. It's like God has done everything He can do. And He wants to save you. He's trying to save you if you yourself will only let Him. And it's, it's presented in a way as though God is, is up in heaven and He's just hoping that somebody will listen and hoping somebody will respond to the gospel. Folks, that's not what the Word of God presents. It never presents the gospel that way. We cannot, we cannot present it as though it is contingent completely upon man. Say, well, is our will involved? We'll get into that later. It is involved. But God's the one who involves it, who changes our heart and makes us willing in the day of His power. Bottom line is that man is incapable of producing any spiritual good. And when you understand what we're, everything we're saying about the natural man, it's not hard to understand why our world and culture is getting as bad as it is. Because that's what's natural. That's what's natural. God is, is turning men more and more over to the corrupts of their will, their natural will and of their nature. He's restraining and man is just doing what he wants to do. And the only thing to change that is for God to intervene in power and to change the heart. Because of the fall of man and him being totally dead or depraved, he has no ability of his own to be saved. It's impossible for him. Impossible. So the result of the spiritual death is that man is totally spiritually enabled. A dead man can't do anything. Listen to some of these verses. John 3 and verse 3 and 5, Jesus said, Except a man be born again, these would be in, in big letters if we had the PowerPoint screen. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 27, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. John 6, 44, No man can come to me except... The Father which has sent me, draw him. John 8, 43. We already said part of it. But why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? 14, 17 of John. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Romans 5 says we are without strength. 1 Corinthians 2, we read it. The natural man receives not. I mean, we even... The Bible says the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. And sometimes the gospel is presented, listen, Jesus will save you if you only receive Him. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says you cannot receive Him. You don't have it in you. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Then it says, 
neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In our natural state, it's not possible. We're bad. In our natural state, we have no hope in our natural state. We have no strength in our natural state. When the perfect Messiah, Jesus Christ, is presented there on the cross, we say, we will not have this man to reign over us. We do not want him. If we were there in our lost natural state, we would have spit upon him. We would have beat him. In our lost condition, we would have beat his back. In our natural state, that could have been us. And to think any better of yourself is to not truly understand the depravity of your own heart apart from the grace of God. See, there's so many good spiritual applications that come from this one that helps us to talk the right way when we talk to people that we're not trying to pump them up before we tell them the bad news. It helps us, if we truly understand this, that if you're here and saved this morning, it should produce a spirit of humility about you. Because you should be able to say with Paul who said, who has made you to differ? And why do you believe? I mean, why can you believe and not another one believe? Are you wiser? Are you smarter? Who has made you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it as though it were given to you, why do you glory? Listen, it wasn't our will that has saved us. It was God's will. Romans 9 says, So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. So what we needed, and what you needed, and what you need as a lost person, is you need not to better yourself. You don't need to just turn over a new leaf and start trying to be a better person. You don't need to just quit doing some bad things that you once did. That's not going to do any good. That's not going to wash away your sins. That's not going to change your old nature. What you need, first of all, is you need a different representative on your behalf. A different representative on your behalf. First, that's what you need. Back in Romans 5, we read all the verses. You might have noticed I read only half of many of the verses. The first part of the verses were about our first representative, Adam. The next part of the verses were about the next representative, Jesus Christ. You need a better representative for yourself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You look there in verse 17 for an example. For if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. So before you say, hey, it's just not fair that Adam was my representative. Think about that for a minute. What about fair that Jesus is your representative? Do you like that? <laughs> I do. Okay, Adam represented me, he fell. You know what? I would have fell quicker in my natural state right now. But I have a better representative. I have one that I do want to represent me. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who took the wages of my sin upon Himself and died upon the cross of Calvary. Listen, you don't need to better yourself. You need, you need to, by faith, look upon Christ, but understand this, that of yourself, you cannot change yourself. You can't do it. You're totally at the mercy of God. You are in no shape to save yourself, and apart from the grace of God, you don't even want saved. 
If there was not a covenant, a defined purpose and plan of Almighty God, a plan of redemption, all of us, all of us would go to hell. So if you want to talk about fair and all this, then that's where we all need to be. And I understand. You say, well, why me? Why would God save me? I don't know why He would save me and not somebody else. It's not because I'm better. Why did, why did He work in my life in such a way to draw me to Himself? It's not because I had a little better nature than the other people. I was all the same clay as they were. I like what Tim Challey said. He said, there's one kind of man, the man trapped in the total depravity of his sinful nature, inherited from his father Adam. And since there's only one kind of man, there is only one kind of salvation. Faith through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said this, and I'll close here quickly. He said, objection is sometimes made to the doctrine of total depravity. If men turn away from God in anger, I can understand it. If men turn aside from God in justice, I can understand it. But when they so hate God that they will not even have His salvation, when they refuse pardon through the precious blood of Christ, when they will sooner be damned than reconciled to God, this shows that their heart is desperately wicked. The cross rejected is the clearest proof of the heart depraved. I love that because sometimes to think that we're not that bad, we look at other people who are really, really, really bad. And what he's simply saying, the fact that you reject the Son of God who died on the cross of Calvary for sinners, that shows how depraved you really are. So the necessity of the covenant. We were dead in sins, and if God had not had a plan and a purpose to save, none of us would be saved. And we're going to see as we go through each of these that He has done it all. He has done it all. And listen, when we get, when we get done with this, we're going to be glad He done it all. I don't People talk about... This is so foundational because when you look at this... I think there's good Christians in all kinds of different churches. I really do. I really believe that. But sometimes we see that people believe certain doctrines. Like they say, well, you can be saved and lost again, saved and lost again. How do you believe that? I mean, if salvation's in Christ and Christ alone, through His blood alone, all in Christ alone, how do you get that and lose it? Who's losing it? I think you need to ask a bigger question. Who is getting it if you're the one losing it? And so, listen, we, we, got, we got some churches around us, and, 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 and I'm just, I'm just going to spell it out. Abundant life, it's growing leaps and bounds. But I'm just going to spell it out. They, their teaching on eternal security is damnable. It puts salvation in the hands of men and not the hand of God. When you have a salvation that can be lost and had, lost and had, folks, that is detrimental to the gospel message. I know it's not easy to hear. Let me tell you why. That, that's, that's bad stuff. I wouldn't want my kids to go around anything like it. I don't, I'm not saying there's not good people there. I'm not saying that there's good kids there. But that doctrine is dangerous. It's bad. Because it does not put salvation in Christ and Christ alone. If it can be had and lost, had and lost. 
And that's the last I heard, that's what they believe. Unless they've changed in the last year or so, that's where they're at. It doesn't matter how much fun they may have at youth group. It doesn't matter how, what they might be doing here or there. That, that is detrimental to the gospel of being in Christ and Christ alone. All right? I love you. I just tell you all this because I love you. All right? <laughs> Father in heaven, I pray that we'd understand the importance of of this teaching and how detrimental it is to understand our natural state and understanding at large the gospel message and what Christ really did for us and how magnificent and beautiful and great the gospel is to come to those who were not just a little bit bad, but those who had no hope, without strength, totally dead, unable to redeem, unable to save themselves, not even wanting salvation, rejecting salvation, and yet you come to us in your grace and mercy and power and save our souls. Father, to you and you alone be all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. Help us as your people to go forth with thanksgiving in a spirit of humility and proclaim Jesus Christ crucified, dying there on the cross, raising again for sinners. Help us proclaim that wonderful message, knowing that you must work and you must intervene to change the heart's of people. It's all in your hands. And we pray for a great movement of your spirit to save many in our day because the only hope man has is in your salvation and you changing their heart, bringing forth life. And that will bring forth great fruit. And it will be seen in their life and seen in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. And amen.